Investment Management Operations is sponsored by MFA. Are you a legal or compliance professional in the alternative asset management industry? Then mark your calendar on May 2nd for MFA's Legal and Compliance New York 2024. This premier one-day event features a program with the industry's top general counsels and chief compliance officers. Attend MFA Legal and Compliance to stay ahead of the curve as you navigate global regulatory and compliance challenges in the alternative asset management space. Learn from top regulators, leading legal professionals, and your peers through insightful panel discussions and candid exchanges. Attendees receive CLE credits for all qualifying sessions. Visit mfa.events to register for MFA Legal and Compliance New York 2024 and explore MFA's full lineup of global conferences. Again, that's mfa.events. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's sponsored insight is Beth Gillia. Beth is the founder of Union Park Consulting, a leading investment operations consulting firm that provides operational and technical consulting to some of the world's leading institutions and family offices. Prior to founding Union Park Consulting, Beth worked at the investment office of the University of Pennsylvania from 2015 to 2020. Prior to working at Penn's Endowment, she worked as a senior principal at Partners Capital, an outsourced investment office. As we all know, upgrading your investment operations is a complex matter. Beth provides great insight on the common yet often overlooked challenges for investment institutions. We spend time uncovering how to enhance your performance data, finalize performance reporting faster, and best practices on managing your service providers. I also enjoy talking about technology selection as a function of one's operational strengths and weaknesses. Whether you're running lean or have a deep bench, there are some helpful takeaways. Please enjoy my conversation with Beth Gillia. Beth, thanks for coming on. I'd love to talk all things investment operations related, best practices, and would love to kick it off with just hearing about your journey to Union Park. Yes, Scott. Well, thank you for having me. So after graduation, I started my career at Lehman Brothers. I started on the equity sales support desk within investment operations. So we supported the U.S. international convertible sales traders that worked with institutional clients like hedge funds. It was a great place to work right out of college. It was a very high intensity culture, but there was also a lot of opportunity I came in at Lehman Brothers at 2004. Historically, Lehman Brothers was known as a bond house, and I was in the equity division. And there was an enormous appetite to grow the equity division. And it was also the start of electronic trading. We used to receive trade orders that had an asterisk 
if it was an electronic trade. That was the exception rather than the norm. Wow. Thinking about my experience at Lehman Brothers, it was very much in 2004, 2005, experiencing that trend towards electronic trading and what that meant for operations. Lehman Brothers was very much prepared to expand their equity sales and brokerage team, but that commissions were going to be pressed down upon. And so when I started and I saw trades come through, it was very typical to have five, six cents a share. And as electronic trading took off, commissions were down to two cents a share. And so how is operations going to support more with less? Very cool. And the time frame is really interesting. So Lehman Brothers, you started 2005, somewhere in that window? 2004. Yeah. And then what happened? Well, it was the rise and fall. 2004, 2005, 2006 were amazing years. I think there was a lot of focus on growth and Lehman Brothers recorded record net income in early 2007. Fast forward to the summer of 2008, it became very unnerving. You could see that Lehman Brothers stock price had dropped 50% already that year. Bear Stearns had been acquired by JP Morgan. The writing was on the wall for us. And so during that summer, there were obviously those rumors that would Bank of America or Barclays take over Lehman Brothers. September came and the stock price dropped, I think, another 70 plus percent. And then the weekend of the bankruptcy, September 14th, it was actually my father's 60th birthday. Me and my brother worked at Lehman Brothers, 50% of his children. I'm one of four. And so it was extremely stressful in thinking what's going to happen. Many people actually don't even realize this, but September 14th was really the day that Lehman Brothers Asia and Lehman Brothers Europe were taken into bankruptcy. On Monday morning, September 15th, my team came in. I called every single person on Sunday night and said, you need to come in. Lehman Brothers US is actually not in bankruptcy. We are in business still. And that day, we were hyper-focused on settling all the trades we could in terms of the trades that were due to settle that day, any failing trades we had from the week before in the US markets. And we were calling every client. We actually took all the failing trades from our European counterparts where they had been trading in the US, called them and said, you've got to affirm in DTC and settle these trades. We couldn't tell them then, but we knew we were likely going into bankruptcy that night. And so September 15th was very busy for us. We did end up going into bankruptcy that night. And the 16th, Barclays announced the acquisition of Lehman Brothers US. Wow. What's your main takeaway from that period? I think there's two things that I would say I took away from that. I think anticipating and being aware of your environment is definitely one. And being thoughtful about who you're going to hit your wagon to. Oftentimes, operations is very much reliant on the organization they are working for. And with Lehman Brothers, the dichotomy between the growth in our division and the success in our division and their Lehman Brothers investments in subprime, we felt so detached from what was happening because that wasn't really what we saw on a day-to-day basis. What we saw throughout 2004, 5, 6, 7, even early 8 was signing new clients and increased trading. And so to think about how the demise was something so unrelated, so out of your control is something that's really stuck with me. 
And where did it take you after Lehman? Yeah. So after Lehman in October, 2008, I joined Partners Capital, which is an investment advisory business. They were headquartered in the US in Boston, but they actually were globally headquartered in London. The two organizations couldn't have been more different. I went from a company at Lehman Brothers, there was probably more than 25,000 employees to Partners Capital, which very much felt like a startup. I was employee number 13 in the Boston office. There were probably only 30 to 40 total employees at the company, but it was an amazing experience. I'm a big fan of my time at Partners Capital. The company was very much an inflection point where they wanted to invest in technology, considering service providers, in reevaluating division of duties and roles and responsibilities. And so I was brought in to a new role, which was the head of client service in Boston. I was responsible for all operations that were client facing. So that involved everything from data entry to reporting, to invoicing, to tax support, to investment execution. And I think the main learning from Partners Capital was just that great operations can be achieved when you have a collaborative and productive relationship between the operations team and the investment team. One of the biggest changes that I felt when I got to Partners Capital was we were sitting right next to the investment team. The operations team wasn't on a different floor in a different section of the office. It was very much intertwined. I would be sitting across from the CEO of Boston and I would sit next to a principal on the investment team. Setting that floor plan up enabled for enormous collaboration between the two teams and ensuring that as this organization grew, the two teams grew together and supported one another. I see the benefit of that as what I would call tacit information flow. Just being in the room and you learn about all the things versus you would never have that at Lehman because it was in another building or another floor. And seeing the big picture, I think, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. And so if I summarize my experience at Partners Capital, there was immense growth in terms of new clients and the types of clients, but it was an amazing environment to be in. We were at the early stage of a company that was going to be extremely successful. I mean, Partners Capital now is over 50 billion in AUM, over 300 employees, and we felt like we were doing something really groundbreaking to be in that environment and share the successes was wonderful. Where did you go from there? After Partners Capital, I moved to Philadelphia and I worked at the Penn Endowment. I had always aspired to work at an endowment office. The opportunity to do the job I love and to continue to pursue my passion for investment operations, as well as work for a great cause is really rewarding. While I was at Penn, a new CIO had joined just two years prior to me starting. And so there was this opportunity to really affect change in operations. I actually was hired at Penn to do what I do today, but just for them as a full-time employee, I was hired by Mike Lukasik and Peter Amin to help them implement a system that they had selected prior to me joining. It was a complete end-to-end solution, research management, 
all the way through to exposure transparency services and portfolio management. We work together as well to reevaluate roles and responsibilities between the operations team and the investment team. We reimagined relationships with service providers and implemented those changes, but the role was solely project-based for a number of years. And the idea was to really collaborate with the existing operations team and help propel the operational functions forward to catch up to the growth that the endowment office had experienced in terms of AUM and other factors within their portfolio. Can you give me an example of how you reorganized or reimagined roles and responsibilities for the better? As I mentioned earlier, I was hired to implement a system that Penn had selected prior to me joining the office. And so one of the biggest changes was I was an additional headcount for operations, and that really created the space to rethink, reimagine, reorganize what operations was within that investment office. Not only was I tasked with implementing the new system, but also overseeing that vendor going forward and ensuring that Penn got the most out of that platform as possible. One of the biggest changes within operations was really that I was doing vendor management on behalf of the entire office. I was the subject matter expert. I was tasked with investing and developing a relationship with that vendor so that when members of the investment team or operations team had ideas about new product functionality or wanted certain custom work done, I had laid the groundwork in terms of that relationship to make those types of requests and get those noticed and get those focused on by the vendor. I think this was a very novel idea at the time. Many investment offices that were pursuing similar technology implementations didn't have that dedicated resource to focus on vendor management or ensure the use of the system post-implementation was fully adopted and maximized. Another major part of my role in reimagining what operations was at Penn was living in the data and being this dedicated data resource to review non-accounting, non-performance data, which is traditionally always overseen by operations. This included things like research management data, identifying and fixing duplicate contacts or duplicate managers, identifying meetings that had no meeting notes and rectifying those, overseeing exposure transparency data, and really just as a whole, centralizing as much data oversight and data entry with operations as possible. I think one of the last things I wanted to mention in terms of how we reimagined operations was really on reporting. We wanted to create an environment where the investment team could self-serve on reporting. And so we spent a lot of time building reports and dashboards and safe searches. So the investment team was as self-sufficient as possible in retrieving data. And so although data oversight and data entry really sat with the operations team. We wanted data retrieval and data aggregation to be as seamless as possible for the investment team. And so a great example was 
a stock IPO'd in the private portfolio and a senior investment team member wanted to know what was the portfolio's exposure to this stock and what would the expected gain be based on the IPO price. And that person was able to self-serve and find that information without operational support. And I think that was a major achievement. That sounds very innovative. We achieved great things at Penn together, not just in terms of systemizing processes, but also thinking about who is the right person within the organization to own processes and to do the process. Tell me more about Union Park and what you're doing today. We work with different investment offices, both on the GP and LP side, on strategic operational initiatives, which include everything from setting up an office from the ground up that may be a brand new family office or maybe an endowment or foundation office that has decided to in-house from an OCIO. We work on projects that involve technology, that involve third-party service providers, that involve human capital and making sure the right people are in the right roles. And we also work on projects that are very focused on service providers and what would be appropriate in terms of insourcing and outsourcing. One of the reasons I wanted to start Union Park was to help people. And I realized I could make a greater impact by working with a number of organizations at the same time. This is my life's work. I have dedicated my entire career to investment operations and the opportunity to share those learnings, to share that real world experience, to help organizations drive results, to take an independent look has really been tremendous. I think my goal overall in my career is to leave this space, this investment operations world in a better place than when I started. And I think I'm very much able to achieve that through working with my clients and educating them and guiding them and empowering them to transform their environments. What are the common challenges you run into for these institutions? In terms of common challenges I see, I think we're noticing is around vendor management. Vendors, which include both technology providers as well as service providers, going through COVID also experienced severe labor shortages. And there was a huge competition on talent, not just within technology and software developers, but also on great people at service providers. And so All of that has really presented challenges to our clients, to this industry on how they manage vendors. I experienced a crash course on that at Penn. The technology provider that we worked with was in their infancy in terms of developing their LP product. And I think my learnings from Penn, if I said what was the most important thing I learned is how to manage a vendor and how to make sure we have their attention, not just in terms of responsiveness, but also in terms of their offering, in terms of evolving their offering to suit our needs, developing their product to better help us manage the portfolio. And some of the guidance we are giving our clients is number one, be your vendor's champion. And if you're not there yet, it needs to be clear why not. There's a famous saying, being clear is being kind. And I think that saying is very pertinent to this topic of vendor management. 
there's a monetary component to every vendor relationship. And these investment offices very much feel like they are the client, but this really is a partnership. And if you don't feel like the vendor is reaching your expectations, I think it's important to be clear with them. Um, what your expectations are, highlight what is working and where they are meeting expectations, and also highlight where there are areas for improvement. And being a good partner requires that. On that same thread of being a good partner and being a champion for your vendor in the market is being a reference. Again, if you're not willing to serve as a reference in this particular moment, be clear on why and what do they need to do to fix that. Being a reference is a very valuable tool, not just for them in terms of you helping them with the sales process and with onboarding new clients, but also it's a great way to meet other clients that are joining them to create this network and community within that vendor where you can work together to push product or to push service or to give them feedback. Great feedback on this. And I think one question I have is if you're the little guy, where's the sweet spot? Is it getting in early with some of these groups as they're trying to get adoption and traction market fit? If I'm at a small organization, how can I help move the needle on defining what that product attribute might be that's best served for me and not maybe the large institutions that are going to come in like I have a lot of money and I have a large contract? What should the little organization do? I think that's a common misnomer that your value to the vendor is solely based on your contract size. One of our clients that is a billion-dollar endowment has a model relationship with their technology provider. And so it is not all about the total cost of the contract. And the way they've done that is because they've met with the product team. They've done demos with the product team to show the product team how they're using the product what's working well, what could be improved. They're beta testers on new products. So they have that, as you've suggested, to be an early adopter, even when you're with a vendor, being a beta tester, you're one of the first voices for that functionality. So I think, yes, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that when your contract is larger, you might get more attention. But we've seen many instances with our clients in the $1 to $5 billion range where they are getting free custom work because they have been great partners to this vendor. The other question I have related to this is how do you keep tabs on all the new shiny things that are coming to market? I think the way you do that is your peer network, even talking to vendors and seeing who are you up against in the market. And it's not meant in a way to think about moving, but they will know who they're up against in the market and who they've lost to. Certainly leveraging your network and your current vendors will give you some ideas. And I think there are also very specific conferences that you can attend within various divisions like the family office world or the ENF world, there are conferences where oftentimes new vendors are brought in to do presentations. And that's another great way of getting some new ideas on who's out there. What else? Another common challenge for institutions, especially coming off of years of a tight labor market is recruitment and retention of team members. There is turnover in roles within operations, especially where there's perhaps repetitive tasks involved like data entry or document collection. 
how we think about addressing that with our clients is how can you eliminate that type of work within your office and elevate those team members from a maker to a checker so that if a team member leaves, the process isn't falling down. You just need someone else to oversee it. Also thinking about for every operational function, who is the primary person responsible and who is the secondary person responsible? You don't want to wait to cross-train your team until someone leaves. Also thinking more broadly and spending some time when you're not in a fire drill to hire someone, what is your recruitment plan? What is your staffing model today and in the future so that if someone departs, you are following a strategic plan versus rushing to backfill an open position? In terms of following a plan, a staffing model is really important to think about what are your needs in the future. And in terms of recruitment, staying close to headhunters and understanding what talent is in the market, what demand is like in the market, what is compensation like is a very important planning tool versus reacting when a team member departs. There's always this trade-off of you find good people. And if they're really good, my saying is they'll last two years unless you can find a way to help them along. I'd like to think that people want to commit more than two years of their career to an organization. I think there is a lot of opportunity in operations, and it's not really just about entering data anymore. A theme we're seeing a lot in terms of staffing is really this broadening of what an operations role is. You rewind 10 years ago And you have a very different landscape where operations was very much uh, data entry, accounting, tax, audit, and now operations and risk management are at times one in the same. And there's an expectation within organizations that operations can take on risk management. And other ways that operations has brought in their role is around technology. 10 years ago, if an investment team member spoke to their peer at another organization and heard about a really helpful system, they might pursue the implementation of that system and they might even be responsible for oversight of that system. And that has evolved very much. So now operations is not only responsible for the team, but also responsible for technology. And you see within many of these endowment and foundation offices that maximizing their use of those systems and that technology is very much a part of operations and managing those vendors as well. So it feels like the traits and characteristics of who you might hire has shifted based on all these things you just discussed. When you're helping your clients find somebody, what are the traits of a good hire today? The number one thing is problem-solving skills. Going back to my experience at Lehman Brothers, the one thing I learned was I needed to get comfortable with change. Change happened a lot on the way up on our rise and change happened a lot on our fall. And you need to be able to problem solve and adapt. And so problem solving skills, giving them real life scenarios that the organization has faced, that the operations team has faced is really helpful during interviews communication skills. We talked a lot about that at my experience with Partners Capital and the collaboration with the investment team. And so 
being able to not only communicate within operations, but also external to operations to the investment team, to vendors is really critical. So examples would be giving them a scenario where they have subscription documents to fill out and board book reporting due. They also have to do document collection. What would you do first and how would you communicate within the organization about your priorities and when the rest of the team is going to see these deliverables, open-mindedness, anticipating and being willing to adapt to change is really important. I think one of my favorite questions to ask in an interview is, what's the last time you had a conversation with someone where they changed your mind? And if they take a really long time to think about that, I think the question is, Are they having a conversation or are they just talking at people? How would they approach if an investment team member mentioned a new technology in the market? What would they do with that information? How would they think about that? Would they say we're good enough or would they make time over the next month or two to pursue a demo with that system? One of the other things I would say, which holds true and has held true since the dawn of time with operations is being detail-oriented, accuracy, giving them an example report and saying, okay, make a checklist on what you would check on this report before giving it to the CIO and telling them it's right. What about the ability to raise your hand and say, hey, this isn't working anymore? Is that something that's becoming more prevalent or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that would go back to communication skills. What people are looking for is not just individuals to identify problems, but individuals that identify solutions and not that they've burned hours and days researching a solution and keeping everyone else in the dark, but using quantitative data to bring forth your arguments. So What I mean by that is at Penn, we realized very quickly that one of the things that we were spending a lot of time on was document collection. And we tracked metrics like how many emails are we receiving from managers? How many documents does that equate to? How much time are we taking to sign on to a portal? And we're not just coming and saying this isn't working because it's taking too long. We're saying there's an upward trend and we started to go out into the market and see what are the solutions that could help us. Quantifying things makes it easier to socialize your ideas around an investment office, but also when you find a solution to really quantify the value it's going to add to say, well, this solution will save us two hours per day, which equals X. And so the cost per year is going to be paid back in a matter of two months. That is how we have always encouraged our clients to approach problems or challenges in their environment. Could you frame the magnitude of the data problem in terms of emails, contacts? I don't know if that's something that is at your fingertips, but I'd love anything to just scare some people of the pervasiveness. Data is a theme through every single one of our projects. If we're not working on their accounting and reporting records, we're working on their research management, or we're working on a process around checking reporting or reestablishing reporting. And so it's pervasive. I think how we've thought about data is a few things. We've thought about 
ownership first and foremost. Who is the person that owns the entry and who is the person that owns the review? And we've thought about automating reviews. So in terms of research management, a great way to automate reviews is there's a duplication report and you can immediately see contacts are duplicated or managers are duplicated or pipeline funds are duplicated. In accounting, I think the automation comes around seeing where, you know, outperformance or underperformance with a benchmark to hone in and really check that to check flows in and out and see that that makes sense as you take step back and see your cash that month to check that the flows on the reporting actually match the cash account. I've seen an enormous evolution in this industry over the past 10 years on tools to improve the accuracy of the data, but it really does still rely on people and process. And so beyond the ownership, we like to institute more downstream processes in terms of the output when the data is extracted from the systems in terms of reporting or dashboards, what is the check that, again, you're instituting via checklist before that report goes out the door to a client, to the board, to the CIO, to the investment team member? So checks are at the entry point as well as the reporting point. Are there any services that you like these days more than others? We're agnostic. I think when we think about vendors, we break that problem down into a few different areas. We think first and foremost about what is the current team at this client? What is their composition? What is their strength? What is their weakness? And we think about pairing them with the right vendor. There are some clients that are extremely technologically savvy and are very comfortable using certain technology or integrating multiple systems to get to the solution they need. And there are other clients where that is daunting and overwhelming. And so for us to recommend the same thing to everyone really wouldn't achieve the goals I set out to achieve with Union Park. The first and foremost is who's your team and what are their capabilities? I think secondly, is we are all resource constrained. We're resource constrained in terms of our budget and in terms of our time. And so what works for certain institutions and what they have budgets for for certain institutions might not work for others. And so we need to really tailor what we recommend to the client that's in front of us. Finally, I know people like to tell us that We can start with a blank slate or a white piece of paper, but if they already have certain vendors in their environment, when they don't have the budget to rip those out right now, we have to recommend a solution that will integrate with what they have. And none of these are limitations. They are just factors in our decisions. That makes a ton of sense. One related question I have is just on How critical is it to actually understand what your process is before you launch into all these initiatives? The best thing we can leave our clients with is education. What we are trying to do, what I'm trying to do with Union Park is we are trying to change the trajectory of these clients' operations. So we're not just trying to go up on the same line of the graph and get to a higher point. We're trying to move the entire line graph up a notch. 
we are striving for excellence. And the way you're going to do that is through education and empowering. So we very much bring our clients along and we are going at a pace that we have agreed on, but we are also very much hands-on training them and educating them about not just the systems and processes that we're putting into place, but also the soft skills like vendor management and how to completely transform a relationship they have with a vendor that has been unproductive into a very productive one. We're really passionate about making sure our clients understand not just the best practice for reporting, but how they can keep up with the trends in reporting and the types of conversations they should have with peers and the types of questions they should ask at conferences so that they remain on that trajectory when we depart. We like to think of ourselves as a Jenga block. And when we pull ourselves out, the tower is extremely stable still. And that's the biggest reward that we have from our work. You hinted at reporting. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit about what you mean? Yeah, it's all sorts of reporting. That is another thing in addition to data that we're touching on for every client. And so some of the reporting is from scratch. They don't have the reporting established in their organization. So we've worked with clients where they hadn't received performance reporting until 35, 40 days after month end. And we've transformed their setup. So the CIO receives reporting 12 days after month end. There's no technology change in that. There wasn't a lack of systems in there. The process was not as effective as it could be. We're touching on internal reporting that helps with pipeline management. Another great example is working with an organization on a Monday morning meeting dashboard that's being used to guide their morning meeting about pipeline management, about the diligence process, about recent meetings, about upcoming tasks, and wrapping up all of that reporting into a dashboard where they're actually not having to print an agenda. They just actually open up their system and it's right there. Another example of reporting that we've worked on that we're really proud of is key performance indicator dashboards, where we're working as a final step with the operations team to say, we're here, we have changed so much. Now, how do you make sure that you're continuing to assess the health of your processes? And so setting up key performance indicator dashboards on various metrics, not just in the delivery of reports out to clients or internally, but also in their response times and the types of requests they're requesting has been extremely helpful for organizations to use to monitor and manage their environment in the future. And what about investment committee reports if you're at a large institution? We've built those from scratch. We had a new family office that set up an investment committee and we worked with the CIO. And then when the COO was actually onboarded, we merged him in. We end up producing those when there isn't an operations person there and it's a brand new office, we're in build out mode. And then we've helped a number of clients with that. And I think one of the main learnings I would say, and it's in one of our recent quarterly letters around investment committee reporting is the idea of 
how to check it and what's the process. And I think reporting is a challenge for all organizations. In the investment advisory space, you're challenged by the sheer volume of reporting. You're generating it not for a single entity like you are for an endowment foundation, but you're generating it for hundreds of clients at times. And I think other organizations, the GP side, same space, you could be generating cap statements and quarterly reporting for hundreds of investors. We've worked on projects like that. And then the ENF space, the focus and the family office space is less on volume, but more on depth how we've thought about reporting and how we've really pushed to help clients is memorializing a process and a checklist. So no matter who is running that process, it's consistent and the team can be confident in the results. And the checklist isn't only around what to check once the report is actually generated, but there are multiple checks to be done before you start to download data out of a system or hit submit or okay on a report generator. How we've also really worked with clients on reporting is to think about efficiencies in reporting. For the GPs, again, you're dealing with volume. And so thinking about how you can mass generate reporting and how you can mass disseminate that reporting, that comes in the form of portals. We've implemented portals for various GPs, also thought about other tools to help them through the process. And then on the LP side, we've really focused on the detail and the data because there is so much data that is collected for these investment committee reporting, it's not just accounting and performance, it's exposure transparency, it's pacing models, it's liquidity. That requires a lot of different downloads out of the system. And so we've been pushing vendors and working with clients to reduce the number of downloads so that the process can be as efficient as possible for them. Are you seeing changes in the trends of the information that a board wants to look at? There's evolution, but it's very much dictated by the board and the CIO. What we saw with the new family office that we set up, the CIO and understandably the board wanted to leg in with reporting. They didn't want to start with a hundred page book that they were flipping through. They wanted to start with certain reports and the reporting has evolved. And so in the terms of a new office, I think reporting evolves a bit over the first few board meetings. I think with an established office, it's tweaked a little bit here and there, but really absence a major shift in portfolio management or the CIO or the board, it's not changing in our experience substantially period over period. Is there any trend of going fully digital on the reporting? Oh, absolutely. At Penn, we had uh, binding parties and we printed investment committee materials and mailed them out. And it was a great way to celebrate that block of work. There are many institutions that are printing right now and There are actually tools in the market that are solely to disseminate board meeting materials to people. And so it's not necessarily being distributed even by email anymore. Reporting is one function within operations that requires a lot of attention. One of the things we really encourage our clients to do is to have postmortems after delivery of significant materials to really remember and to document what's working and what's not. And that can 
extend from everything from it's taking me a really long time to generate these reports for all the investors or the committee, or it could extend to I'm the only one and next quarter I'm taking vacation and no one else knows how to do this. So having those check-in points after a significant reporting event really helps to continue to push that function forward. I want to turn to just investment operations as a whole. I'd love to hear your thoughts on just attributes of what a successful investment operations might look like. Yeah, I think a collaborative and a productive relationship between the front office and the back office. When you're at an organization that has that, you take it for granted, but you see within other investment offices that their growth and ability to reach excellence is really hampered by a poor relationship between those two divisions. And I think a great relationship looks like the operations team is not just serving the investment team in terms of supporting them through investment execution and reporting and other functions, but also learning and listening and hearing what's next so that the operations team can anticipate and plan for the future. The ability to anticipate is a skill and something that is seen in great operations divisions. Another thing is excellent vendor relationships. Like we spoke about earlier, one of the most important books you could read as an investment operations professional is How to Win Friends and Influence Others by Dale Carnegie. It gives such basic and common sense ideas, but it really is the foundation for great vendor relationships. Another attribute is being an independent thinker, being willing to be a first mover in the market and not using your peers as a benchmark, but simply just a data point. And you don't need to follow suit with everyone else really thinking about what your problems are and how best you could solve for them and collecting information from your investment team, from your organization as a whole, from your peers, from conferences, but choosing what would be best for your organization. In connection with that is being self-aware and realizing what are your weaknesses and being hyper-focused on the weakest link within your organization and allocating the appropriate resources to that function or to training that team member or to investing more in the adoption of that system. I would love your thoughts on just how important it is for investment operations people to actually know the portfolio, know a manager coverage. You can look at something and and really understand what it is versus processing. It's important to an extent, but you can learn a lot of that on the job as well as learn a lot of that by working with the investment team. So that was something that I learned a lot while I was at Partners Capital and at Penn in terms of report checking. You don't need to memorize that this manager generated this return, but what you do need to know is knowing the general direction of the market that month. And so if the markets are up and you have generated a report that shows negative 20%, how that probably could not be. And that might require some additional review. Being aware of those general trends, I think looking at all the funds within an asset class and seeing what are the outliers and being curious to learn why is that fund an outlier? Not only is the number right, but why did that fund outperform 
I had an incredible opportunity to do operational due diligence while I was at Penn. And so learning and meeting the managers and understanding their strategy and what risks they might face because of that strategy is critically important in that function. And so there are areas within operations where, yes, you do need to understand the strategy of the manager, the strategy of that investment. You don't need to be at the level where you would make a recommendation as to whether to trim or redeem or top up that investment, but certainly being aware of the risks within that investment and how it has performed. We touched a little bit upon the accuracy and operational improvement of performance reporting, but what about things like IBOR? That is something that we've done a bit of work on. If you rewind 10 years ago, there weren't many iBORs available in the market in terms of technology platforms. And then there were many of them. They were at a much more reasonable cost compared to some of their predecessors that could start at costing at seven figures, which was not feasible for endowments and foundations and any investment office that were in the single-digit billion ranges. There were a number of technology firms that started in 2010, 2013, that time frame, and really took off in 2016, 2017 in offering this technology to these investment offices. And I think the value of an IBOR is very long laundry list. Its initial purpose is to really shadow your accounting records and to enable you to oversee your official books and records and your accounting records, whether it's internal or external at an administrator. It's a more efficient way than spot checking when the accounting records are produced every month. But it's evolved into a lot more than that. And so we have really worked with a number of clients to implement IBORs so that they can oversee their accounting records more diligently, more thoroughly, but more importantly, that they can offer their investment team, their CIO, the ability to get the most timely data. We've paired IBORs with content collection and data extraction tools to move these investment operations teams to less manual data entry to a more automated solution in keeping these IBORs up to date. Tell me more about that content collection and data extraction. What does that mean? One of the biggest challenges with alternative investments is that the valuations and transactions are received in PDF form. And not only are they received in PDF form, but now due to the rise in concern and information security, these PDFs are now posted on password-protected, 2FA-protected websites. So the time it used to take to download an attachment from an email has gone up two, three-fold. You could look at an email and get an attachment off in a matter of 20 seconds. Now it takes two, three minutes to log on to the website and get the PDF document. There are tools in the market that use robots to go and get the PDF documents off the websites, and they're able to leverage stored passwords, and they're able to read emails with the 2FA code to get back into the website. This technology isn't new to the market. It's been around for probably four, five, six years. I think it's just gaining more adoption within the market today. 
going back to what makes great operations. I think there are a number of organizations that perhaps wanted to take a wait and see approach versus diving right into this type of technology four to five years ago. This is where this industry is leveraging generative AI. So once the robot retrieves the PDF document, oftentimes that technology platform uses generative AI to categorize the document, to tag it to the appropriate fund and to date it. And so that's currently the main use of generative AI in investment operations. Then what the systems do is they extract data based on templating and other tools. So what they're extracting are the ending balance on a cap statement or details around a capital call from a transaction notice. And they're putting that in a structured file that can be sent to the client's eyebore. A future focus for AI, I would say, is around summarization. And so what that means is taking the documents and summarizing them. And they're not being subjective about that. They are summarizing the information into buckets, information about the team or information about the performance. The future is rather than having investment team members reading the quarterly letters or multiple team members reading the quarterly letters within an organization, the quarterly letters would be provided with an AI-generated summary. That would stand true with meeting notes as well. Well, Beth, I love digging into the details, and this has been really insightful, seeing what's happening, what you're seeing. We do like to close with two questions. The first one is, what is the one industry book or other resource you most often recommend to people? I think I would recommend How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Another great book for people that are just starting out in their career in investment operations is Eat That Frog. It really touches on how to multitask, how to get more done in less time. And then the second question I have is, what advice would you give to someone exploring hiring an operational consultant? I would say first and foremost, think about their real world experience and whether the people that you're going to work with have that real world experience, or is it the people that are just selling to you? I think second thing that we think about a lot at Union Park, applicable to all consultants is time to value. We don't think about implementations as binary. It's either done or not done. We think about how do we get results for our clients in the shortest period of time so they can be brought along in the journey, but also see the evolution of their environment and feel that all this work that they're doing is actually resulting in something. We look for smaller, shorter wins, especially in long-term projects. Looking for a full-service consultant that not only provides the strategy and design, but also the full implementation It is really critical that consultants stand by the recommendations that we're making and that they think about the environment as a whole and whether that can support the recommendation they're suggesting. And that includes people and human capital and thinking about whether the client has the right team to support the solution you're proposing. And if not, to help them get the right team in place. Finally, just conflicts. From my experience with Partners Capital, we've just really believed in providing unbiased advice. We don't want to feel that we have to recommend a solution 
because we're receiving compensation from vendors in the form of referrals or subcontracting. We really want to find a solution that's right for them rather than jamming them into a solution that would be right for us. This is good stuff. Beth, thanks so much for your time. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.